Hello and welcome to 30 Minutes On, a podcast from American University Magazine. I'm American Magazine staff writer Andrew Erickson. Today, in our summer 2022 episode, we're spending 30 minutes on sports law. Earlier this year, the United States women's national soccer team reached a couple historic agreements. In February, the United States Soccer Federation agreed to pay women's national team players $24 million, including back pay, to settle a gender discrimination lawsuit filed in 2019. That laid the groundwork in May for the men's and women's national team players associations coming to terms on new collective bargaining agreements that guaranteed equal pay in international competition. Karen Litau, a 1991 graduate of the Washington College of Law, joined American Soccer's governing body in summer 2020 as its chief legal officer with the goal of repairing relationships with players and bringing about labor peace. This spring, she and her team were able to do just that. She played a key role in negotiating those landmark deals. In the absence of black letter law helping guide her and her team through the negotiations, Litsau went back to quote, what I think is the core of any good deal. It's the relationships between the parties, she says. We started there and started rebuilding those relationships. It's really about people more than anything else. Litsau joined 30 Minutes On in June and filled us in on our three decades in law, including 20 years as NASCAR intellectual property and general counsel, that led her and U.S. soccer to this historic moment. Here's our interview. We hope you enjoy. So, Karen, thank you so much for for taking the time to join us. Uh, I really appreciate it. So, in May, it was announced that U.S. soccer and the men's and women's national team players associations had reached collective bargaining agreements that achieved equal economic and other terms. Now more than a month removed from that, can you describe your reaction to, to you and your team being able to, to get that across the finish line? Yeah, I think that we're just really excited. I mean, it's just been a long odyssey for all of us at the Federation, and I think we're really just ready and anxious to reset the relationship with our players association and move to a new era. Um, and, and why soccer? How was soccer and specifically soccer in the U.S. able to kind of take the lead on this and, and what kind of, an, kind of an example just looking broad scope this can set? Yeah, well, I think, and you know, we've already seen in conversations with other federations that it is setting ex- an example, at least in the world of soccer. Why soccer? Well, I think you have to thank the U.S. women's national team for using their platform to sort of bring this to the forefront and you know, provide their perspective on what equal actually means, because in the past within the soccer community, particularly with respect to, you know, tournament pay, which isn't set by us, the Federation, but is paid out by these other organizations like FIFA and and CONCACAF and others, that tournament pay has just been historically so unequal that they felt compelled to use their platform to pursue this uh, first at the EOC and then and of court of law. And so that left, you know, all of us really looking at the models that existed to see, you know, what what it was the women were saying, and then trying to find a mechanism that would solve for the issue. And obviously that took years. Right. I, I read another interview you did where you said that the goal in some ways was to kind of simplify, simplify, simplify. How did that bleed into these interactions and what were some of the goals you had just in, in setting the tone in, in these negotiations once you came aboard? Well, at first, I think you need to understand that I am not a labor lawyer, nor do I think of myself as the best lawyer on the planet, uh, nor did I have any experience at all uh, in sort of uh, equal pay situations. What I do have is decades of experience in sports, you know, a history with complex uh, negotiations and deals. And I think 
what I saw when I arrived was such a complex environment with two labor unions, which is unique in the United States, two labor unions working for the same employer, but who do the exact same work. And so how do you negotiate when there are different agreement cycles? So they never had in the past negotiated their collective bargaining agreements on the same cycle. You had different perspectives. You had a lawsuit happening at the same time. It really was something that A, is unprecedented, period, but for me, incredibly difficult to come in, you know, at the end and try and solve. So there isn't a, you know, there's no black letter law here that would tell us how to solve all of these moving parts. So it really, to me, went back to what I think is the core of any good deal. It's the relationships between the parties. And so we started there and started rebuilding those relationships. And, you know, maybe we can talk about how we did that, but it, it is, it's really about people more than it is anything else. And obviously you joined the U.S. Soccer Federation in the midst of a global pandemic. <laughs> I, I'm curious what that first year looked like for you, how much of the time was devoted to, to this very issue and those moving parts, like you said, and in and, and what respect it was also just getting the lay of the land. Yeah, a lot of it, I'll say for me, was just trying to get the lay of the land. The last thing you want is a lawyer to step in and, you know, think you know everything. And I certainly didn't, as I said, know much of anything. Uh, I do know how sports make money. I do know sort of the general premise of what the Federation was trying to achieve. But really, you know, a lot of it was the lay of the land. And you have to remember, I was meeting my own team via Zoom because right. we were socially distanced. I was in a completely different state when I was first hired. And so all of those complexities of trying to build relationships via Zoom is just, it, it, it was a challenge. I do think that, you know, we made progress for sure. But I think when we were able to go back to live bargaining, it was a pivotal moment for all of us, because as I said, it's about people and building relationships, very much harder to do that, you know, this way. Right. And, and what about this opportunity in particular, was something that resonated with you um, and what what really led you to to want to to want to come aboard so interestingly enough years prior i had actually applied for this job gotcha. uh, at us soccer and so i did not get it for a variety of reasons you know we can talk about but at the time i did not get it uh continued working in my role as general counsel at nascar but you know, uh, my husband took a job here in Chicago. He is the general counsel for the Cubs and he moved here in 2018. So I had a child to get through high school and send off to college. And, and then I attempted to join him here in 2020 and then COVID broke out. So right. I had a period where I was just taking really a break to try and assess what this was all going to mean for me and obviously for my family and everyone else. When I saw some of the news about U.S. soccer and come up, you know, on my own Google alert. And uh, so I just, you know, I reached out to their new CEO and said, look, here's my story. I have all this experience. It looks like you guys could use some help. I was really only thinking in the context of maybe I could help them write some contracts or yeah. do something to keep busy, uh, not knowing all of what was going on inside the Federation. And he called me back a few weeks later and said, would you be interested in taking a bigger role? And so at that point, I think um, my naivete or positivity or optimism, something took over. I just said, I think I can help here. Um, even though, you, as, you, as I said earlier, I had 
not all the pertinent or relevant skill sets for the job. I did have a lot of experience with litigation. And, you know, I do think it's, you know, it really spoke to me in terms of how fractured the relationships were. And I, you know, I know in speaking to people, a lot of jobs, when I ask, you know, what, what is the day-to-day -day like, there's the, the common answer is there is no day-to-day. -day. I imagine that is the case with you. How, how different can what you're working on week by week, month by month differ? And um, what is it like to, to have to pivot in those ways? Yeah, I think it's, you know, in-house counsel, and I think most in-house counsel would agree with me, is really a lot of firefighting. It's just issues that pop up and where you use your your knowledge skill set or you hire someone to help with whatever the fire is and try and put it out. Um, I do aspire to the day-to-day -day being more normal and relaxed and I'm hoping that we can dial it down a bit you know at US soccer. Ideally what you're doing uh, every single day is something that's relatively predictable and isn't on the front of the New York Times or anything like that and so that's really the difference between what we were doing and what we hope to do going forward is to just really build the sport at this unprecedented time, unprecedented time where the, the World Cup is actually heading our way here in the US. And right. we have a lot of positive news. So, you know, in-house counsel, general counsel, chief legal officers, they really can't predict, but that's part of the fun of being in those roles. You mentioned just the people aspect of it and whether it's a labor negotiation or something else, just the importance of making connections, understanding differences. I'm curious in three decades in law, how much better you feel you've gotten at that over time and what are some of the most important lessons that you've learned um, in that respect along the way? Yeah, I, I, obviously, I, you know, I think we all get better uh, over time. I think that for me, I, you know, as an army brat growing up, we traveled all the time. I was always, you know, trying to fit into the next school that I was attending and or the next club I wanted to join or the next sport I wanted to play. And it does teach you, you know, sort of to pay attention to the people around you and figure out where you can fit in and not, especially as a teenager, not be, you know, the object of ridicule or whatever. So I think adaptation, flexibility, uh, all of those things come more naturally to me, but I, I did get better. I do think uh, my listening skills over time have certainly improved as opposed to intend, you know, trying to force my opinion on others, really trying to hear what other people are saying and find that common connection. And the, you know, the best lesson I think for me is just that approach every situation with transparency right. and integrity and persistence. And usually you can get there. And changing gears a little bit, what first inspired you to pursue law school? Oh, great question. Well, so, you know, a long time ago when I was little, I, I just really wanted to be actually a police detective. Yeah. And I really, you know, thought just solving mysteries was where it was at. Uh, obviously, as I grew up, I realized that it's not that simple. Um, and I realized that there are a lot of really interesting problems that lawyers were working on. I found out decades later, later that uh, when my mom was doing sort of her uh, family, you know, family research that I come from a long line of lawyers and judges. So maybe it wasn't actually my choice and maybe it was just, I was destined to do this, but I I just really am intellectually curious. I want to be part of something that's bigger than myself. I want to have an impact. And I really felt that in our, in our society, lawyers are really behind the scenes doing a lot of that. Yeah. 
And was there a particular, as you were starting to get later on into law school, was there a particular type of law that you were interested in practicing and how did you start to, to delve into those interests? Yeah, well, I'm certainly not doing today what I thought I would be doing when I was at American. I went to law school really wanting to be a criminal prosecutor and pursued that, you know, with all the vigor I had. I actually got an offer to be a state's attorney in Miami working for Janet Reno at the time and ultimately could not take that. Um, and just because my law school loans and my college loans were so high that there's no way I could live on the salaries that were be being paid back in that day for those positions. So I declined the position thinking I would at some point get another offer. It was really interesting that I graduated in a recession. And so a lot of the students who were much smarter than I suddenly started looking away from law firms because law firms were not hiring to other areas where they could get litigation experience. And so now that was an even more competitive choice to try and be a prosecutor. And then within the next few months, um, uh, my family became a victim of crime and my brother was killed in a carjacking. I'm so sorry. South Florida. Yeah, it was, it was a really tough time for me, but it really, um, you know, it was interesting. I, I, again, it just was one of those things I feel like was ultimately uh, of benefit to me because it led me to intellectual property law uh, as an alternative choice where I wouldn't be spending my life with criminals. And, you know, and so I, uh, I, I pivoted to that and it has turned out to be really just an area of the law so well suited for me and gave me all kinds of opportunities I never thought I would have. And I certainly never thought I would be heading NASCAR's legal department or later U.S. soccer. That just was not on my radar at all. And, and when you first dove into it, what about trademark law kind of clicked with you, just the tone of it, the type of issues you were working on? What, what about it felt like a good fit right off the bat? Yeah, so in, particularly trademark law, I mean, brand branding is such a creative exercise. And a lot of people don't know this about me, but I have the whole creative bent. I love to design. I've designed a couple of homes. I've you know, I've, uh, I love to, to paint. I have, you know, I love the, the clever play on words. I, I just really appreciated what brand owners were trying to do to help their products sort of jump out to the consumer. And it was a very intuitive area of the law as well. You know, the Lanham Act is, is uh, a really interesting body of law. And I, I, I thought, you know, this is a great fit for me, at least at that point in my life. And so I went on to work for, you know, a law firm uh, litigating um, trademarks for the various clients that they had and just loved every part of that. So I think it's just the creativity of what, what people are doing in that space that appealed to me. And I know you, you joined NASCAR in 1999. How did that opportunity come about and, and what about it um, felt interesting to you? Yeah, so I, I had been at the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office for about four, four and a half years. And my husband at the time wanted to, also an AU grad, wanted to go in-house for a company in North Carolina. And so uh, I said I'd go with him. I ended up at this law firm. And then NASCAR was looking for someone who would, uh, they had just done a, a massive race in Japan and they realized that they had no trademark expertise in-house and no international trademark portfolio. So they were looking for somebody who had both registration and litigation experience to come manage their trademarks. And they hired me as their first trademark counsel to, to help register their marks around the world. 
And, and I'm curious, just in, in working in, in sports industry law, like the extent to which sports bleeds into that, if it just happens to behave like a, a normal organization or, or, or corporation that, you know, sports just happens to be a part of it, or how often those two things intersect just in your field? Yeah, well, so I think, you know, tra trademarks and branding is a huge part of sports law. Obviously, sports sponsorship is about the affiliation of one brand to another and each trading off and getting the goodwill that the other brings. Um, so it was, it's extraordinarily relevant to sports law. It also bleeds into a whole, you know, the commercialization of sport is just an incredibly um, strongly based on intellectual property law. So it was a great sort of introduction, but I always say that sports law is sort of a misnomer. Your client may be a sport, Right. Um, but they have many, many more issues than intellectual property issues. And so for me, it was a great jumping off point to learn whole other bodies of law that apply to sports, but trademarks and sort of that sponsorship and trademark angle got me in the door. And how did you transition from doing that and, and mainly focusing on trademark to kind of doing everything under the sun? Yeah, when I joined NASCAR, I was one of three lawyers. And so you really had to learn to work on everything. And I think, you know, we, at the time I joined shortly after had been sued on an antitrust litigation that was really, you know, sort of a game changing lawsuit for the sport of NASCAR where one of the entities within the sport challenged NASCAR's right to grant dates, particularly to a sister company to the exclusion of other tracks. And so for me, this was a, a really, um, you know, I, I had no awareness. I was working in the Charlotte office, but I, I was chosen because I'd had prior litigation experience. And I kind of laughed at my boss. I said, well, you know, I was litigating trademarks and intellectual property and I have zero antitrust experience. And he said, okay, we're hiring some of the best law firms in the country. You need to teach them the sport and they'll teach you the law. And that's exactly what happened. And, and what is it like having to, to dive into a completely different realm of law at a moment's notice? I love it. I mean, I really love it because at the end of the day, in-house counsel are often, you know, a mile wide in terms of their experience and an inch deep because we have to be, you know, there are just so many issues that are coming up. You just need to learn to spot, you know, what area of the law that issue is in. How much do you personally know? How much does your team know versus, oh no, we're going to have to hire outside counsel here. And, you know, who are we going to hire? So for me, the hiring choice had already been made here. NASCAR chose a terrific law firm with really, uh, really great lawyers who were my teachers. And so I've been able to, you know, absorb that and then teach others sort of how to do what we did in that case. But it's, it is one of my favorite things is when we get some new meaty issue and I'm learning something new because I'm, like I said, I, I tend to be curious and I hope I never lose that. And what are some of the first steps you take in, a, in an instance like that, where you kind of have to get the Cliff's Notes ver version and then, and then dive deeper? How do you, where do you even start? What's your starting it's point? It's so funny that you asked the question that way, because literally the first call I had was with a young female associate who was assigned to the case. And I said, I don't know anything about this. Do you have Cliff Notes somewhere that you right. can send me on any trust law? And so she, she literally sent me, you know, her book and we, you know, I would ask, I'd read it at night and ask a bunch of questions. I think that's unusual. It, the only reason I dove that deeply in because of the complexity of that particular case. I think generally what happens is you 
you figure out, like I said, how much you know, and then you start really talking about what, what are the company's needs here? Do we need to hire someone full-time? Do we just need to call someone and ask them a discreet question and we can handle the rest? It's really just a decision, a sort of a decision tree that you go through to figure out where you're gonna end up. Over the last couple decades, what would you say are some of the biggest differences in the way you, you practice law? What would you say, and what would you say are some of the most um, important things you've, you've learned during that span? Oh, wow. You know, I think uh, the, for me, I think you come out of law school thinking that, you know, there, there's a lot of black letter law that's going to solve your problem. And if you just look hard enough, you're going to find a pre-existing case that will tell you how to handle whatever it is you're facing. And I found exactly the opposite. I don't, I can't think of, you know, more than two or three legal questions that I've ever been able to answer based on black letter law, either because you know, of the state I was in and it didn't apply or because there was some curious argument being made by an attorney on the other side where the case just didn't apply. And so the, the, it's, I find that to be, you know, one of the lessons is just really, it's really, this equal pay case is a great example. There, there was no law to help us here. It was just this intersection of all these factors. So for me, it's, you know, never assume there's going to be an answer out there. And um, litigation to me is never the answer. It's never a good choice for companies except in the most dire circumstances. And I think most, my advice always is find the way through it that makes sense for both sides. And again, build the relationship, try and solve it. I had a mentor once at NASCAR who, really great guy. And he said, you know, I'm gonna, I want you to, to really negotiate the heck out of this contract, Karen, but I'm gonna put it in a drawer and I'm never gonna look at it. And as a young lawyer, I was really offended. What do you mean I'm gonna work yeah. this on a contract and put it in a drawer? And he said, most of our problems we're gonna solve through the relationships we create because especially in the sponsorship context, you might want this sponsor at some point in the future to come back to you and you don't want them to remember the relationship as having been contentious or awful or, you know, some litigation happening as a result. So for me, I, you know, again, it's about, it's about the fact that law, it, it, it is what it is, but at the end of the day, most and many, many, many legal issues will be solved by people. Right. Um, and I'm curious what advice you might give to attorneys either in law school or fresh out of law school who are starting to think about how they might specialize or the degree to which they might specialize, what, what would you tell them about your experience and, and what to think about in answering those questions? Yeah, I wouldn't have, well, for me, I, I think what I learned in life is that you think you're gonna be happy doing one thing and only that one thing, but there are so many interesting areas of the law to explore that if, for example, you don't end up you know, getting an offer at the firm you wanted or doing the law, you know, practicing the type of law you wanted, go out there and explore. There's no reason why you can't reinvent yourself multiple times in a career as long as you're going to have. And there's just a lot of exciting work out there that may, you're going to miss if you just focus on one specific thing. And you mentioned the World Cup uh, in, coming up in the U.S., Canada, and Mexico in, in 2026. What else is on the horizon and what has you excited just in, in your position? 
Well, obviously we have the, the World's Cup that's coming up at the end of this year in Qatar. Right. Of course. A, a fascinating tournament. We're following up with the uh, Olympics, you know, next year. And so we are we are always busy with the next tournament. But I think for me, after working on this equal pay case, I'm really excited to see what the growth of women's soccer in particular looks like over the next four years. Women's sports generally are you know, really in the news right now. And I think we're at a pivotal time in our country's history and, you know, moving women's sports forward. And that's, you know, it's all of us supporting it. And also all of the companies that are out there that are providing tournament dollars or putting on events um, or even television broadcasts need to find ways to help support the women's game. And I think it's gonna only benefit all of us uh, in sports if that happens. Um, I think those were all the major questions I have for you. Is there anything else you wanted to add about, about U.S. soccer, about your role, anything like that? Yeah, you know, it's a, it's a small but mighty organization, and I would just love to give a shout out to my legal team who are every day showing up, you know, trying to solve the complex, complex and newsworthy issues while, you know, under fire from people who may not understand exactly what we're working on. I also want to, um, just as a side note and maybe a good place to end, on this conversation about relationships is the two players associations that worked with us to solve this equal pay issue and the, and the women and the men behind their players association really had to want this to happen. And you can never solve issues unless you have willing partners on the other side. So I would, I'm extremely grateful to all of them. I think we're, like I said, in a new era and I'm excited to see what happens. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time and, and we very much appreciate it. Anytime, Andrew. Thank you. That was the summer 2022 episode of the 30 Minutes On podcast from American University Magazine. Thank you so much to our guest, Karen Lietzow, for joining us to chat about labor agreements establishing equal pay for men's and women's national team soccer players, as well as her extensive legal career. Be on the lookout for our summer 2022 magazine, which hits mailboxes soon, and read up on stories about other talented alumni. From fellow WCL alumnus Chuck Dickerson's leadership, of the Inner City Youth Orchestra of Los Angeles, to School of Public Affairs alumnus Jason Kander's retelling of his efforts to address his PTSD in his new book, Invisible Storm. You can let us know what you think about the podcast or the summer magazine by emailing magazine at american.edu or chatting with us on Twitter or Instagram at au underscore American Mag. You can find previously recorded podcast episodes and subscribe in the Apple Podcasts app or Google Podcasts. A full transcript of the show is available on our website at american.edu slash magazine. Our theme music is Laurel Breeze by Evan Schaefer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.